This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Snarky Faith. Snarky Faith is a place where we dive headfirst in the tumultuous crossroad of life, culture, and politics in Christendom today. Fed up with the insanity in Christianity? Well, you'll feel right at home here. I'm Stuart Deloney, and Snarky Faith is more than just a critique. Join me as we wrestle, question, and explore the dialogue that shapes our faith in the world today. So look for Snarky Faith wherever you listen to podcasts. Lord have mercy. The Lord is my shepherd. He know what I want. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. This is kind of like part two of a conversation, though it's actually a whole different conversation on a completely different day, as you'll be able to tell because I have a terrible cold. As I'm talking to Rick, I sound hilarious, but just, you know, you'll have to get used to it. And once you do it, you'll be fine. It's a separate day, though we talk about some of the same concepts. They're kind of interwoven into both conversations. I really appreciated my time with the philosopher, the author, the professor, the teacher, the Dr. Richard Boothby. If you want more context about us, you can listen to the intro of the last episode, or hopefully you've already listened to all of that. But I find Rick to be a really important voice in the world. And I think if we could get more people interested in what he's talking about, which really ultimately is love, we might be able to help some folks evolve their religion. So we talk about some of the things we both experienced in losing a kid, about Girardian desire and Lacanian desire, which I find really fascinating, and how love is infused within Rick's writing with his latest book, which is called Embracing the Void. I actually hadn't read Embracing the Void before our other conversation for reasons that I disclose within that episode. But by this time I had, and I found it to be super interesting. Among other things, Rick talks about different approaches to love. And I really think in a nutshell that love of the other is ultimately the evolution of religion. And by the way, love for the other in a Girardian sense or a Lacanian Freudian sense in a very real way, is love of oneself. Because we are constantly desiring the desires of others. Their, their desires and our desires become one. And inversely, we're, we're constantly, well, I don't know if it's inverse because it's all mixed up within it. We both love these desires and we hate these desires. So we're fighting them, constantly trying to figure out, you know, our autonomy and our own agency, all the while taking on the ideas and the concepts of others. It's impossible not to do so because we live in a relational context. So all of our desires, for good or for bad, are enmeshed within us, and none of us are entirely separate from the other. So, in a sense, to love the other really is to love oneself. This is an evolution of religion. It's not for the faint of heart. So I commend you for wading through the ideas and the concepts as Rick and I even try to wrestle with it. And I think he's probably better at this than I am. So I really appreciate your involvement with this and your interaction with it. All right. Well, once again, thanks everyone for helping make Indigo the Color of Grief happen. It's been the most enjoyable and meaningful book launch I've ever done. And I'm hoping that by now you've had a chance to pick it up. And if you have, man, it'd be awesome if you could leave a review on whatever platform you bought it. 
Those reviews are super important, and it's just an easy way for you to support me and the work that I am doing. By the way, you can support me on Substack or Patreon as well as buying my books, because none of this stuff comes to us like cheaply. <laughs> it's cost me a lot financially, relationally, emotionally to even get where I'm at here. So even just putting this podcast together and those kinds of things takes time and it's taking some money. So whatever support you want to give, it's great. But obviously there's no pressure. This is a consensual relationship, people. So you don't have to do that. This is just the invitation for you to think about it. So yeah, pick up a copy of the book, leave a review. And I always have to remind people, don't worry about leaving some long, profound thing. I mean, if you want to leave something long and profound, that's fine. But don't psych yourself out. Just a couple of sentences that are heartfelt and that, you know, mean something to you when you leave the review is totally fine. All right, here is something that I'm calling part two of my conversation with Rick Boothby. To be honest, I hope there are multiple parts in the future. I love this guy. Thank you for your time. Peace, everyone. I just thought it was very fascinating. You know, for someone like me who hasn't done as much psychoanalytic work, I'm always trying to connect the dots. Like, I'm a, I'm a Rene Girard guy, so he's very much influenced by psychoanalytics, but he's not, he doesn't cite them a ton, and he's not a huge fan of Lacan. So I'm always, I'm always gravitating towards finding stuff that helps me see where this is birthed. It's birthed in Freudian thinking. And then it was helpful to see, you know, and to hear about Lacan's declaration of Christianity that I had, I had not heard of that before, but as all of it rotates around the void or the gap or the lack, that's, that's the piece that is just so fascinating to me. And I think what we share in common is the lack of, you know, losing a kid creates a gap, but it's not, it's empty, but it's, but it's a, pre, it's absence, but it's a presence, the contradictoriness yeah. of all that. Yeah. So that, that really caught my attention. Well, you know, the relationship to Girard, uh, though I don't mention Girard in that book, um, uh, is really handy because what Girard is on to in his um, mimetic theory of desire, mimetic meaning, you know, likeness, that, you know this, I'm explaining this for other folks, but the idea that we want what we see other people wanting is really maybe a crude way of saying what Rene Girard's theory really is, that that we get moved by desire when we see someone else going after something, and we try to imitate, or we're drawn to imitate that others desire. Well, that's not silly. I mean, this there is something about that. We we see other people doing stuff and we imitate them. Um, there's no question that this is a this is a real phenomenon. And um and Girard is 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 got his finger on something really important. What Lacan is about, which I think adds a really crucial dimension, it doesn't deny, of course, what Lacan calls the imaginary includes that that Girardian mimicry, where I seek to desire the way I see the other desiring, and the object of their desire becomes the object of mine. But what Lacan adds is something I think, I increasingly think it's absolutely crucial, is this thing that he takes from Freud, Freud mentions it and then drops it, the unknown in the other. 
that every human being I meet, directly or indirectly, faces me with a question. What are they really thinking? Not, oh, I see them wanting that. But rather, okay, maybe they do show me that they want that, but why are they after it? There, there's no answer, at least on the surface of things. I don't know. I may be able to see them pursuing some object of desire, but I may not know. In fact, I never know totally. What is that for them? What are they into here? What is really driving them? And that, Lacan says, in the Freudian terms that he borrows from this one mention in an unpublished work of Freud's, is the thing, das Ding, the thing in the other, which Lacan wants to say, and I think he's right about this. The more I've thought about it anyway, the more I'm, I'm really fascinated and, and convinced by this idea that in a certain sense, the most fundamental thing about our relationship to our fellow human beings is centered on what we don't know and can't for certain say about the other. When I'm even talking to you right now, I think to myself, I'm trying to explain this to you. And I'm thinking, well, I wonder, A, is he understanding what I'm saying? B, does he think, you know, it has any validity, any attractive features that he might, you know, kind of take up himself and, and accept? Or is he thinking, oh, Boothby's gone off the deep end again? This is all rubbish. Well, of course, looking at you, I don't know. As we never really know, even with those closest to us, we don't ever fully get their experience. It's closed to us. And even when they say something to us, even when they say, well, Jonathan, you know, it's been great talking to you today. As we'll say in another hour, whatever it is, right? We'll say, oh, well, it's been wonderful talking to you. But then the question is, well, what am I not saying? Or maybe even, what am I not saying precisely by saying, oh, thank you, it's really been real, it's been great. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can easily imagine that I'm playing to the good positive side precisely to avoid saying, you know what, this really didn't work. And I'm, I'm going to just kind of gracefully try to kind of put this in the box and put it on the shelf. Because we're used to dealing with people where we have to navigate our differences and we have to navigate often negative judgments. And being really, really totally honest doesn't serve our interests a lot. So there is this unknown um, in, in desire, in the desire of the other. And that is the key. It's the absolute key notion that led me to this, this book. Um, and at the center of the book, an interpretation of Christianity, a radical interpretation. What Jesus means when he says, love thy neighbor, and particularly when he adds, he allows that love thy neighbor is in the Torah. But what isn't in the Torah is love thine enemy. I tell you not just love thy neighbor. Okay, that's already hard enough. I'm telling you something even more mind-blowing. I'm telling you love the one you're afraid of. And what that means to me is it's just a more emphatic way of, of, of saying love everyone you meet. Mm -hmm. 
neighbor or enemy, because even the neighbor, you don't fully understand. You don't fully know what they think, how they feel, who they really are. And Lacan accentuates this. He says, you know, if we really understand what this all means for the neighbor, it means the neighbor already is a kind of enemy. That is to say, is a kind of stranger. It also interestingly means that a piece of ourself is a kind of a neighbor stranger enemy as well, because we're desiring the desire of the others. They desire the desire of us. There's a mirrored reciprocal thing going on there. Brilliant. Yeah, exactly. That is, that would be, I was thinking I'm going on too long. Got to put the, put the <laughs> mic back in your hands. And that, but that's exactly the right next point. The reason why this is all so important, the reason why we're called, you might say, to re-engage constantly this unknown and the other, even as we also try to avoid it, it's both, we're ambivalent. We're essentially ambivalent. We want mm -hmm. to get in there and find out what that is, and we're also afraid to know it. But it's exactly correct, I think, that what's at stake is not just knowing what we don't yet know about the other. The path toward that is also the path to knowing something about what I don't know about myself. Yes, and I think it's possible that the people, yeah, so it's this brilliant move that Jesus makes spiritually, but psychologically, because to love your enemy is to love yourself, is to give that part of yourself that you cannot understand, and frankly, kind of freaks you out, is to give it a hug and say, in the terms of like Father Richard Rohr, everything belongs. It's okay. Everything yeah. belongs here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 I exactly. Love that. I love so, that. so the embrace of the neighbor in love really means I'm being asked to embrace what I don't understand. I, I can't, I don't even know. And frankly, it's really anxiety producing, precisely because I don't know. I'm taking a chance. I'm taking a, it really is, as Kierkegaard said, a leap of faith. And you're totally on the line when you make that leap. Yeah, forgiveness and embrace, these are vulnerable moves. They're, they're, they're moves of faith. There's no real certainty. There's a, my friend Aaron Simmons calls faith um, risk with direction. So there's mm. some direction there. You know, there's a pattern there that we've seen in the past, but it still doesn't guarantee anything. And um, I suspect that's the real reason. Well, I started to say, I suspect that's the real reason that dominant religion and theology doesn't get f very far down the road is because their, you know, vulnerability is the last thing they want. But I hesitate as soon as I said that, because I realized that's true of me too. So I would just be a hypocrite to point out that that's accurate of them, but it's true of me too. It's true of humanity. We, we're very adverse to vulnerability. And in that sense, the grieving piece for me is a blessing because it's required me or invited me to constantly be in a position of vulnerability. Yeah. 
I, and I I hate it, and I and I really am honored by it at the same time. I really get that, as you know. I mean, yeah. that's so that's so true. Or grieving the, the the position, the existential experience of grieving is the experience that has no grounding and has no guarantee, and and you enter upon a kind of in grieving, you 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 you're, you can feel almost dragged into the position of grieving. Um, you can't not be in grief, but it it doesn't ever promise to to redeem you or give you. You really have to just enter it and be in it for the best. And um, and then what does save you is, if anything, I think, is especially if it's for a lo grieving a loved one, well, I guess what else is grieving, but grieving someone you you cared about from out of the position of their loss, inexplicably, can some can come something nourishing. Yeah, uh, something that, that 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 isn't just cold and empty that miraculously is um, a new touch from that hand that is no longer there. Yes, I'm trying to wrap my brain around that, but I think that that's right. I mean, I I I found myself um, I found myself. Uh, I assume your listeners probably realize this about the two of us. We share this loss of a child. Uh, I don't know if that's the worst possible wound, but I've, I know I've had a lot of people say it to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they say that must be horrible to have lost your son, to have, in your case, to have lost your daughter. Um, they were quite close, I think, too. It, wasn't she just 21 or 20? 20, 20? Yeah. Yeah. 20. yeah, my son was uh, 23. Yeah. And, um, when you when when that loss occurs uh yeah it, it opens up a a void that you um it's initially both terrifying and and absolutely tormenting but then the weird thing is uh, that you find it's it's if you're open to it it's not as much of a void as you abstractly thought that that in some sense, she's still there. In some sense, my son is still there. In fact, I, I it's been now uh, coming up on that's seventeen years, coming up on eighteen. I think. Um, I feel his presence a lot, mm. um, as though it's as fresh as it was yesterday. Presence in absence. That's right. You know it so well. That's right. And so for you, what does that say about the divine? If there's presence in absence, what might that say about God? I th the risk that I take, and I, I say it's a risk, I mean, a lot of other people have risked it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm just beginning to realize how what a big crowd that is, actually. Mm -hmm. 
that God is not is not the know-it-all lawgiver who asks us simply to obey. God is much closer to being himself someone who is beyond life, someone who is almost, we might almost say in death, someone we, we miss as if grieving so that God is a, is almost more of a lack than a fullness, almost more of a question than an answer, almost more of a, of an aching, missing something than an overwhelming presence. However, that relationship to this kind of infinitely open other, because that's part of what the loved one who has passed away is. They are no longer here, but that doesn't make them nowhere. They are still open to you. They're still, in a certain sense, at the at your fingertips. They're at the ends of every emotion. They are, um, you're still, in a sense, they're with you. Um, they're just not with you in the way that they were. They're not yeah. with you to um, to see them across the table. You're not. They're not with you to to give to to return your hug. But they're not gone. Where are they? You know, one says, "Well, that's part of the the unknown." I don't know. I can't answer it. But I can say that my son has been as with me in death than he was in life differently for sure yeah but um but i can feel his i can feel my relation with him and i can feel his sensibility his sensitivity that's pretty interesting your thoughts about um what you just said about god then for you um can can you say can it be as simple as God is love and all those things you just remarked about God and the unknowing, the void, is, is that love? Absolutely. I wouldn't hesitate at all. As long as we then pause and say, have we understood love? Right. I think of, um, I think you two uh, talk and, 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 and know a good deal about Simone Weil. Yeah. I love the, I mean, Simone Weil, I think, was extraordinarily sensitive to this dimension of our, our relationship to the divine as a kind of, not simply as an absence, but as a, um, I think of her essay um, about God um, uh, and affliction, mm. where where, where she imagines that God is is in a some some very paradoxical way at an at an infinite distance from us. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he's right here. Uh, almost as Augustine says, closer to me than I am to myself. God is is right here, while also being 
at an infinite remove, infinitely distant. Um, I, I'm after my son's death. I really felt this um, um, about him mm-hmm. that he's now distant, but weirdly intimate. And also, as you were saying a minute ago, about myself, um, I am. Who is more intimate to me? Who is who am I closer to than myself? And yet, I uh, loss of him taught me how little I truly control, possess, know myself. Mm. Yeah. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Yeah, exactly. And 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 then and then the comfort in my experience wasn't just a there there. It it was a surprise. The comfort was nothing I would ever have expected. Yeah, were you um I don't know if this is where you were going, but so you know my my background was pretty not not entirely evangelical, but pretty much an evangelical pastor. And yeah, so you told me a bit about that. Yeah. I had to deconstruct that. So I lost, and I say had to. I, I'm not sure that's the right word because I I I, I want to live in an open universe, but um almost, almost had to. I was invited to like let go of a lot of the stuff. And so there was a whole grieving process there for me. And it was very, very challenging to navigate this all the structure that was falling down you remind me for you your background you're coming at this from philosophy but you do have a religious christian background too so did you have to pull a lot of that down or was it just like enhancing the things you had already kind of created in your mind i think i feel almost lucky that i had a a quite um gentle <laughs> and and moderate um christian background i was um in in what now is called the united church of christ a congregationalist mm-hmm. sure. church when i was growing up which which meant a good deal particularly to my grandfather and my namesake i'm named for him um my parents were i think a good deal less involved with the church but it meant something to them and so we went fairly frequently when i was little and I remember as an adolescent, the associate pastor, um, I still remember his name, was Berger Johnson was his name. And I became quite close to him. Mm. Um, thinking back on it is strange because I didn't really, I don't think either one of us asked for it, but somehow I just kind of bumbled, I bumbled into it with him. Mm-hmm. It was meaningful, but uh, but yes, I, I fairly, certainly when I went off to college, um, I... I I was, you know, drawn away into philosophy, which gave me a new way to sort of think about some of the things that I was otherwise attracted to in my Christian upbringing. And there was some definitely for me, there was definitely something about um, the Christ story, and the figure of Christ that meant a huge amount to me. Um, but I would have to say that I, I, I guess I had to rediscover that through kind of ultimate detour, including very much some of the great atheists of the world. I mean, um, Marx and Freud and Nietzsche, 
maybe the big three, but um, it's interesting. I about uh, I'd say five or six years ago, I had a very interesting experience where I all of a sudden, completely out of the blue, I thought I think I was walking by myself someplace, and and I suddenly thought it just came to me. I thought, of course, I believe in God. I just haven't the faintest idea what he or it is. But I unquestionably think that that there isn't something like dead matter. <laughs> that that the sort of, you know, physicalist universe that 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 the really kind of hardcore scientific types can kind of advocate that there's no life, love, magic. There's nothing truly meaningful in some larger sense in existence i thought no of course i think there is yeah well i i, I don't need to make an argument about it it's kind of like i i absolutely this is too what exists is too mind-blowing <laughs> not to be you know not to force us to come up with some ultimately special term for it and but but what that term means to me is it's completely magical mm -hmm. and completely thrilling but of course i don't understand it <laughs> i kind of infinitely respect it and and i love it every every time i hear a bird song and every time i see a sunset and every time the wind blows and i close my eyes i love it mm -hmm. and i feel it touches me at the deepest places that I know. Yeah. But I don't know what it is. Well, I I well, I think, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I know what it is either, but we've already identified that we would like it to be love. And there's something about love that gets to the heart of it. But back to then what you started to say earlier, it, that then invites us to redefine love itself. And my, my experience has been that, you know, love is just, um, it's a pretty cliched word and um, it's been watered down and it's been co-opted by the ideologies that are run by the myth of redemptive sacrifice, that love would need sacrifice in order. And I just don't, I just no longer think that's true. And in Christianity's sense, I don't think Jesus had to die to get God to love us. I think his death reveals uh, the love that's already there, but it's not there as a requirement. So it's just funny how the dominant forces of religion have flipped the whole thing on its head and have so much of the power economically, politically, mm. even nationally, military-wise. Military and um, so to be in this work of redefining love is actually dangerous work. <laughs> mm. Yeah. When the philosopher in me thinks of love, from one angle anyway, this is the angle, this is a philosopher that everybody rolls their eyes. Even the philosophers all roll their eyes at, at the name Hegel. They say, oh, no, not Hegel. This is the great 19th century German philosopher who was the, the great thinker of dialectic, that where dialectic is the relationship between two op opposing things like light and dark 
or life and death or male and female or whatever you might take as a kind of an existing opposition. And dialectic implies that the one that is the opposite of the other also cannot exist without the other. So without darkness, there is no light. And without death, there is no life. Just as there is no life, there's no de death without life, there's no life without death. They co-define each other. So Hegel gives us this, this image, this kind of marvelous kind of unity of everything that exists because everything is dialectically bound up with its opposite. But the other thing that most people don't know about Hegel, which I find incredibly exciting, is that he thinks that the ultimate opposition, the ultimate opposing dialectical opposition is between the infinite and the finite. Mm -hmm. And Hegel actually follows through. He says, just like there cannot be darkness without light, and there can be no light without darkness, there cannot be infinitude without finitude, mm -hmm. and vice versa. And now you think, well, okay, that sounds kind of just technical, like, okay, that's kind of logical, but that sounds like a nonsense. Here's what I think of that. This is going back to your question of love. And now makes me wonder, do we have love when we recognize uniqueness? Like when you recognize that your daughter wasn't just someone who was in your life who died, there's no other one like her. She was an absolute one-off. Mm -hmm. And then you realize, of course, every human being is an absolute one-off. Mm -hmm. There'll never be another Jonathan Foster, not even on some other planet, in some other galaxy, in some other eon, in some other, you know, vastly distant. There's, there's no, not going to be another one. You're it. By the way, this is, uh, I would say now, that uniqueness of everything that exists is fundamental what, to what we think love is. And by the way, this is, I, I've been rather mind blown by this also recently. It's not just human beings who are like this. Even if you are a hardcore Darwinian, every animal, Let's say every squirrel, my my particular neighborhood is absolutely a run with squirrels. There's more squirrels here in Guilford, in Baltimore, sort of lots of trees, and there's lots of squirrels, gray squirrels. There are no two squirrels alike. Even Darwin would say that. Yeah. That is, we can translate it this way. We can say each squirrel has a little wrinkle in the genetic code that is special to her or him. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, there'd be nothing for natural selection to select. It's that wrinkle that survives and is passed on into evolution. So quite literally, the idea, Hegel's idea originally, the impossible to read Hegel, the idea is that 
there really is such a thing as total individuality, and it is everywhere. I'm wondering if that's why, or even that's what love is, is our relationship to this radical uniqueness of the other person. Hmm. Yeah, I've not heard it put that way before, but I think that's really beautiful. So yeah, in one sense, there is total individuality. In another sense, depending on how you look at it, it's um, to borrow a Girardian term, interdividuality, because it's always and forever connected with everything else going on around it. Absolutely. This is exactly Hegel's point. This is exactly Hegel's point that you have to embrace both ends of this absolute mm -hmm. contradiction. Mm -hmm. That there is each individual is at some level absolutely a one off. There will never be another Jonathan Foster. Just like there will never be another daughter, mm -hmm. Jonathan Foster. But that far from being a kind of a lone little isolated neutron you know of of existence you exist and you're the product of this whole planet and yeah. of this whole solar system and of this whole universe you're not separate from it you're utterly its child so the weird thing is both are true right. absolute infinity and absolute Finity, finiteness, individual, individuality, personhood, you would say. Both are true. In fact, they're inseparable. That's what Hegel's kind of really massive breakthrough insight was. And by the way, he thought it was definitely the problem of God he was solving. He was originally going to go to, to, um, to uh, school in to become a member of the clergy. He went, was going to go to divinity school, um, such that they had it in Germany. And, and he decides, no, I'm, I'm too, my mind wants to, to range more freely and without presuppositions, without dogma, I guess I would say. Yeah, I love that. I love that stuff. I'm constantly, on my in my queue whether virtual or physical i'm constantly lining it with books about hegel and i just i have not been able to read much yet and i i just know i'd, I'd have to carve out some time to do it but i got so many things i got i want to read it's tough to tough to yeah. get it all in as we're talking about hegel is he is there something like a father of psychoanalytics and would he be it is that where some of this novel thinking starts is it really more freud um, you know, the, the, the answer is yes and no. Um, the best book, uh, bar none, particularly for somebody who is not familiar with it, is Todd McGowan's book on Hegel. Mm, yeah. Called A Contradictory Revolution. I think that's one of them I have in my Kindle library queue. Yeah. It is really, it's the best book thing that Todd, Todd's written a armload of books. Um, I don't know. 20, 25 books. And it's his best, I think. And the, I think it's the second or third chapter is all about Hegel 
being very, very close to Freud. Of course, he didn't live long enough. Hegel dies in 1730 and um, misses Freud by more than a century. But he basically wants to say that if only Freud could have spent an evening with Sigmund Freud, they would have found an extremely profound confluence of outlook. And the way Todd argues that is just lovely, I think, really I beautiful. But conscious and unconscious are, you know, the big yeah. conscious unconscious distinction is the big kind of dialectical um, resonance yeah. that ties it back to Hegel. Yeah, because it's inevitable. Whenever I began to talk about love and this contradictory, both healing but wounding at the same time, inevitably, I'll someone will say something about Hegel, and and uh, I've certainly picked up a lot of quotes and phrases here and there, but just not read them like I like I would like to. There's a joke about Hegel that the when he was on his deathbed, um, he's. He's he 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 he's he says uh at one point he says, Oh, it was really only one man who understood me. And he paused for a minute and then said, and even he didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an apocryphal story, but nevertheless, <laughs> it's a very appropriate story. Uh, very I, think, appropriate. I think you know, the uh the scholarly um tradition made a complete mess of Hegel. Mm. Even the people I really respect the most, Kierkegaard, as you may know, was incredibly critical of Hegel. He almost made a kind of cottage industry in bashing Hegel. Um, Nietzsche thought Hegel was an idiot. Marx, of course, takes great lessons from Hegel and then basically says, yeah, but once he gets into the dialectical stuff, he's completely screwed up. Uh, so even his greatest followers were didn't get him. Hmm. Uh, and I think only in the 20th century, a few people have started to get him. And Slavoj Zizek is one. And I wouldn't hesitate to say Todd McGowan is uh, another. Really, the book on Hegel is, is so readable. Also, it's a very, very, um, Todd is wonderful that way. You know, he, he avoids and, and just yeah. doesn't play the game of all this kind of right. mystery prose, you know? He actually he, cares about the reader understanding what he's trying to say. Absolutely. Short <laughs> sentences, but it's it, he's a master of it. That's cool. I highly recommend that book. All right. All right. I'm going to bump it up in my queue then. Well, speaking of books, I, I, I hear my voice. I it just can't get any lower, and I think I'm running out of volume. But before we close... Um, why don't you just tell our listeners um, what you had hoped? I know it's hard to say this, but what you had hoped you would find when you did embracing the void, and what you found as you came out the other end. I don't know if that's a good question or not, but I mean, you set out—you you definitely set out to try to talk about Freud and Lacan. You must have had some intuitions that these things were connected with love and Christianity, and um, so that's the direction you went. Well, let me try, I'll try to be brief. I think, as I said earlier, uh, I would not have written a book. I wouldn't have had the um, the breakthrough insight to write that book 
had it not been for this very extraordinary experience at Johns Hopkins University in a special right. uh, research protocol uh, dealing with with psilocybin in right. particular, psychedelic substance, which I'd never done before. And it changed my life. Um, I had four sessions with a very wonderful, um, very wonderful team of researchers. Michael Pollan in his book, How to Change Your Mind, um, talks a lot about this series of research um, protocols that Hopkins created. He even, uh, we did quite a, quite a number of interviews together and I show up briefly in the book. But what really was new for me was a kind of openness. This was a year after my son's death, actually, um, that I got this into this program, thank goodness. What ha what really taught me was the positive, both in the sense of actual positive, but also in the sense of beneficial, liberating, the positive value of realizing how little we know, the positive experience of unknowing. And of course, a lot of it was unknowing what happened with my son. How did how did it come to be that this boy I loved so much and who I felt I knew so intimately, how is it possible I lost him? How is it possible he took his own life? What does that mean for our relationship? What does that mean for who I am, who he was, who we were together? And I realized, A, number one, you know, like any suicide, you never know the answer to these questions. But then I realized, like any love relationship, even aside from someone committing suicide, that agonizing question of why did they do it? This was much deeper. It suddenly made me realize I even loved Oliver partly because I didn't understand everything about him. I didn't know why he was fascinated with clouds. He was crazy about clouds. I loved it in him, actually. I'm a little fascinated by them myself. <laughs> but he loved little little rocks, you know, um, I have a bunch just over, uh, I could almost reach them from here in my study that had belonged to him. He would collect these little smooth stones um, or little pieces of driftwood and stuff. He just loved that sort of thing. And uh, he himself didn't understand it. I certainly didn't. But then I realized, how much can I, of my life can I include in this category? Isn't there at the core of all of our relations of love with people who we really, who, 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 who just mean everything to us. Of course, in a sense, we know these people intimately and that's part of why we love them. But there's always this dimension of, well, I don't really, I, there's a mystery at the, at the core of this person and my response to them. And it was that that really prompted this book. And Lacan, of course, gives this very definite theoretical tool, the unknown in the other that he calls the thing, the unknown thing, das Ding. That I could then lean on, <laughs> but it created for me this, this epiphany. What if the religious is fundamentally a, the, the form, a form of our relationship to this unknowing? that we always have, we cannot get rid of it. And it lies at the heart of 
love, both the one we love and the feeling we have toward them that we call love. We don't understand it completely, to say the least. And that, I wondered, what if that is the whole concept of the whole, not concept, uh, that's the wrong word, the whole kind of lifeblood of our relationship to divinity, to the sacred. The sacred is something we don't, well, up front, we say, we don't totally get it, but we do know we love it and need it. And it's, it's bigger than we are. Um, beyond that, everything is a risk. And that was what really led to this. The, the, how would it be to reread the whole history of religion? And I do it in the book, as you know, I go through Greek paganism and Judaism and Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and so forth. What does it look like to read the, the, the panoply of the world's religions and their histories through this lens that our relationship to unknowing is what ultimately is our relationship to the divine, to the sacred, to the holy. I think that's really special. I'm so glad I asked that question because like, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking, yes, that's it. But I needed to ask the question to remind myself what it was. And it's it's that unknowing piece. And, yeah. I, and I think part of the reason I needed to remind myself is because again, I'm, and this is not to scapegoat the dominant, theological views in which I've been brought up in, which by the way, I can do really well if I want, but just to try to be real. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm good at that. Yeah. Yeah. But just to try to be realistic about, um, I'm constantly still at this stage in my life, rewiring, so to speak, unwinding, maybe a better word, the way I was wound up and rewinding it around love, which to me is around this unknowing, very enigmatic, like, beautiful but risky it's the greatest thing but it's also just most dangerous like core energy you know my religion didn't talk did not teach me to do that and so maybe to connect back to how we kind of initially started I, I think part of the hope of humanity moving forward is to create religions that move be that evolve beyond what we've done which which I'm Girardian in this way, I think what we've done up to this point is a, is a scapegoating mechanism that has been our religion. So to, yeah. to, to come up with liturgies, and I suppose this is part of what Pete does, but to come up with liturgies that help us to embrace this unknowing and embrace ourselves and to uh, try to calm that burning anxiety. That yeah. would be, that would be so, that'd be so great. And I think, I think we're we're on to something all along here. So we just gotta keep gotta keep pulling at this thread. I mean, the thing that surprised me the most, but it fit in the end like a glove, the writing of the book. I didn't expect this at first, but it it just kind of fell open like a clamshell. That if you if you understand the fundamental religious impulse as a relationship to unknowing, this is one one of the things I'm proudest of is a very brief paragraph which I talk about prayer. Isn't the posture of praying fundamentally a posture of unknowing? Unknowing if my prayer will be adequate, let alone unknowing whether my prayer will be answered. 
unknowing even if there's anybody listening. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't even be driven to pray if you if you already knew. So there has to be an element of unknowing that catalyzes exactly, the whole thing. Exactly. <laughs> Prayer is a kind of giving oneself over to the 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 hurt and also the hope of one's unknowing. And by the way, a nice a nice way to compare this is talk about not so much the relationship we have with the sacred, but the relationship we have with the beautiful. Mm. What is the beautiful? It means everything to us. But art, the object, the beautiful, is not something we can claim to simply know and analyze. There's always an excess. So that when we look at the Mona Lisa, I mean, this is the most commonplace art historical comment, that the Mona Lisa, we don't know what she's really thinking. She has these enigmatic eyes, this look of the Mona Lisa, which we don't know how to understand. Well, it's not just the Mona Lisa. It's, in a certain sense, every piece of art that's really worth caring about harbors something we can't really explain totally. The sublime part of art. But if we if we put it in that way, then what really becomes interesting and helpful is to realize religion also, precisely because it opens us to the unknown and does it intimately, Religion also overcompensates trying to give us the answers, trying yeah. to stabilize, yeah. as if to say, okay, we'll allow that unknown, but only if we lay down the law and, and establish the dogma of what we can know yeah. and would be really firm about it so we all feel more stable. And that becomes, of course, the main saw in the argument, the main kind of complement to this openness to the unknown as you were pointing out so well before, not only in the other, but in myself. Then we understand why, actually, so many religions, certainly Christianity, come back with a kind of, well, we'll tell you why. <laughs> well, we've got the law for you that God has laid down, and boy, you better pay attention because he's here to enforce it. So it's kind of like this openness to something we don't understand that's constantly compensated for, maybe not in ways that are always opening and enlightening and enriching, but more defensive, more kind of having the last word and keeping things orderly, where we lay down the law and all you need to worry about, buddy, is follow the law and then you'll go to some great place at death, you know? <laughs> Well said, man. Well, I am losing my voice, so <laughs> we're going to have to shut it down. And uh, you predicted a little while ago that we would say at the end of this conversation that it was great to talk to each other. <laughs> I'm here to tell you your prediction is coming true. It was great to talk with you. Wow. And I uh, I love you, man. I really appreciate what you're doing. And we we just got to we'll keep the relationship going. Well, I, I'm really happy in more ways than one to hear you say that. Um, less that it flatters anything about me, but more that it promises maybe in the future we can, I hope we can um, continue yeah. this this yeah. question about how to open up the next millennium of yeah. religiosity. Um, I must say, 
I don't know. I don't know in what sense I'm a believer. I can't really understand it, but I, I do feel like this is different from Freud. This is the main difference. Freud thought religion is a kind of intellectual immaturity we need to simply grow out of. Mm. I don't think that anymore. I think, I think religion is essential to the human animal. Whatever we are, we're, we're given to this question of, of the ultimate and of the truth and of the beautiful and of, the, of love, of the holy. Alfred North Whitehead's, one of his famous statements is, uh, religion is world loyalty. So. I've never heard that. Yeah, world oh, loyalty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that the love of God flows into the world, and then it's reciprocated back into God from the world, and it becomes one and the same. And so that's the kind of religion that we that we need. We need to let the scapegoating mechanism, you know, die away. And so you're absolutely right that our world is desperate for that. And it doesn't need to be labeled under any particular thing, though, of course, you have to have labels at some level because otherwise you never understand anything. But I think that's what we're being invited into. So that's pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. And we're going to need it. Yeah, we um, need it. We need it desperately. I mean, I, as you, I've, I've been so, so heart-torn Oh, in in the spectacle of 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 Gaza and uh, yep. the Palestinians and the Israelis, yep. uh, and and yeah, yeah, we need a evolution of love. Yes, it's really true. Well, Jonathan, thanks so very much. It has been a great pleasure for me, and I'll look forward to our. Let's just say to the next time. To the next time, I like it. <laughs>